Alright, alright, welcome to another Straight Talking English, season four, the poetry season. That was also season one, but I put a poll on Twitter, so we're a visiting it. I am Catherine, your host, and I am str 8 Talk English on Twitter if you would like to talk to me and suggest some stuff. Talk straight, str8, I guess. StraightTalkingEnglish.com, Patreon, slash Straight Talking English if you like what I do and I really hope you do. Where else am I? Full context series on Amazon. I've actually had a breakthrough with the Power and Conflict book as I'm sure you are on the edge of your seats wanting to know the updates on my writing. And as I'm recording this on an unexpected day off, I might even get my word count a little bit higher. Wow. It's like my student texted me and was like, oh, I'm really sorry I'm not going to be able to make it today. Like, I hope you don't mind. And I was like, oh no, that's so sad. Inside I'm like, wicked, I can do some writing. And of course, the new project is my YouTube series. Search up Straight Talking English on YouTube. I've very nearly finished editing the episode that goes along with this podcast and honestly that episode nearly knackered my camera because it was a really windy day in old london town and it blew off the tripod so now it's got a chip out of it the sacrifices i make for you patreon slash straight talking english support my show and help me uh, repair my camera so today get on topic it's been a long intro ozymandias or Ozymandias, or Mandy, or as I keep saying, Ozymat Damon. But I'm gonna stick to Ozymandias. It is Percy Bysshe Shelley's poem about two big old legs in a desert. Let's talk a little bit about uh, PBS, Percy Bysshe Shelley, and where he was at when he wrote it. So, Percy was born in the village of Horsham in Surrey, And it's on that train line that goes out of London Bridge towards East Croydon, if you want to visit it. It's still quite small. Percy's dad was an MP, and our story today takes place in the time where MPs' seats were bought. So you wouldn't get elected in the standard method, you just sort of built some land, and it was expected you'd be MP of it. He was quite a successful middle-class sort of chap, and it was expected that when his wonderful son was of an age, he would take over his dad's seat. Shelley has this really conventional upbringing, and he ends up at Cambridge. Wonderful Cambridge University, which my boyfriend informed me last night was the only university he could name in England except Oxford. And I was like, what about the uni I went to? What about uni of Greenwich, which is like 10 minutes walk from my house? He's like, no, (laughs) great. And he fell in with a bad crowd at uni. Not the bad crowd that's like booze and drugs and women. No, the atheist crowd. (laughs) So this is the point where um, Oxbridge is restricted to Church of England people. Shelley had a big deep think and he decided that he was now an atheist he wanted nothing do with the church the church is wrong and i mean some people can just stand there and say that or even keep it to themselves i mean i'm an atheist but i'm not going to preach about it like i don't even mention it unless someone directly asks me but shelley took a different road he wrote a pamphlet called the necessity of atheism in which he set out to prove there was no god uh, irrefutably prove this and 
some of his arguments okay one of them is well if there is a divine being how come he's never shown himself eh i'm like all right all right shelly fair enough it's quite it's quite a long uh, booklet but he puts his name on it along with his best friend and they promptly get expelled from Cambridge, he does not finish his degree. His dad is not best in best impressed with him at all. But Shelley takes it a step further. He's got into very radical, like let's say socialist before socialist became a word, style politics. And he writes to his dad and says, I want you to disinherit me. I don't want any privileges based on where I was born, who I am, disinherit me, I'm done. And his dad is like, okay. And they do reconcile eventually. But he officially gave up everything. Politically, he was very much in favour of the people. Democracy is the natural way of humans to organise themselves. It was said that one of his long poems, Queen Mab, was like the Chartist's good luck charm. Everyone who demonstrated for a fair parliament in the UK had a copy of this poem in their pocket. I mean, it's slightly hyperbolic, but that was where he was at. He was also really interested in workers' rights and especially the Irish question, quote-unquote Irish question. Now, I've just been researching Storm on the Island and it's... (laughs) The question is, what do we do about Ireland? Because at this point, Ireland is controlled by England. It is part of England. But that's generally thought to be bad. And uh, Irish people are somewhat mistreated, to say the least, by the Brits who have come over and have created this ruling class. And Shelley agitated on their behalf. He had a bit of help, though. He, um, I'll talk more about this on the next episode on Love's Philosophy, where we talk a little bit about his love life. But at the point of writing Ozymandias, his dad, his father-in-law, was William Godwin. For Shelley had eloped with Mary Godwin, who would later become Mary Shelley, Mrs. Frankenstein. His father-in-law, William Godwin, was a super, super radical gentleman. And this is where he put the idea, he really got the ideas of Parliament is natural. Any kind of hierarchy based on hereditary qualities will always be corrupt and unjust and is not the natural way of people living their life all right fun fact which i i love this i'm just gonna diverge for a sec shirley was a huge fan of wordsworth he was fanboying so hard he took mary up to the lake district to try and meet wordsworth but wordsworth wasn't home so they were like oh okay then we tried and then just left again i know that this is the age of before the telephone but he could at least send a letter or something saying what was going on so he is writing this in the year 1816 we are still in the georgian era or the 19th century because technically the victorian era doesn't start till 1837 when queen victoria gets on the throne He is also living in Italy, which is delightful, with Mary, 
and his sister-in-law Claire. Again, a lot more about her next week. Romantic entanglements are plenty. Italy, at the time, is quite a revolutionary place. So Italy doesn't exist as a concept yet. There are small, like, city-states and areas. But there is political agitation. There are people in the streets saying, we want to do things better, we want a democracy, we want a united Italy, we want all this cool stuff going on. And Shelley was very much in favour of it. It's just, he, initially, I always thought Shelley was a bit wet and a bit unplanned and kind of like Romeo in, Ro- in Romeo and Juliet, where he sort of just does stuff. But he did put his money where his mouth is to a certain extent, and he was really supportive of these revolutionary, agitate types. The real focus of this discussion is going to be who is Ozymandias (laughs) because there's got to be someone a person a place or a thing that he is mulling around in his mind I've got four suspects and I'm gonna go through why I feel like they're the suspects and feel free to ignore me but done my detective work peeps this is some sherlock holmes business flashback to the sign of four and that grinding long season i don't know if you felt the weariness in my voice by the time i finished that but all right first suspect napoleon bonaparte bear with me on this one so 1816 napoleon has been at war with england more or less on and off for about 13 years. Napoleon, young man of noble-ish, lower ranks than the nobility, birth from Corsica, rose his way up through the French ranks of their army due to his technical skill and crowned himself first consul of France, did a little casual military coup and is the boss man. After these years, which are known as the Napoleonic Wars, Napoleon finally surrenders. That's in late 1815. And 1816, he is sent off into exile in Elba, which is a very good example of the palindrome. Napoleon's lament, Abel was I, ere I saw Elba, which is always the example I bring out when someone says palindrome and then they look at me funny. Napoleon had been like this big bad, you know, like the bad guy for a lot of Shelley's life. It's like the French are coming, the Catholics, Napoleon, everyone's going to get invaded. Ah! And we've had these huge victories like at Waterloo and Trafalgar. It's a massive like national zeitgeist. Napoleon, who thought he would be the emperor, who thought he would control Europe forever, didn't and ended up living in a very modest house on a very small island. Somewhat like a king of kings who thought that, look upon these works, ye mighty and despair, and actually was just a pair of legs. It could be a metaphor for Napoleon's foolishness. The other link to Napoleon is via ancient Egypt. So Napoleon decided to take on Egypt, like you do. And when he launched his army into Egypt, he brought along with him artists, scientists, archaeologists, scholarly people 
and it's the first time that the ruins of ancient Egypt had been properly catalogued. It became this massive like book instalment series where every year from 1812 onwards a book, a part of like an encyclopedia would be released and I really did want to find this for you guys but it's only in French and my French is like holiday level you know like where is the hotel two coffees please and it wasn't gonna happen peeps I'm really sorry but this explodes ancient Egypt into people's consciousnesses consciousnesses uh I think the plural of consciousness is consciousness the public consciousness the British Museum has just been opened and there are a number of Egyptian curiosities in there already for London. The Rosetta Stone, which you can also see at the British Museum, has been translated. And this is this big chunk of rock, if you don't know about it, that has hieroglyphics at one end, regular Egyptian in the middle, and Greek at the top. And it's the same message in translation. Because we can speak Greek, like Greek people can, um, we can understand the hieroglyphics. This huge explosion of interest in ancient Egypt comes about. Everyone is loving it and it is all associated with Napoleon. I really recommend, by the way, um, I went down to Cleopatra's Needle to film and if you actually want to poke an ancient Egyptian obelisk, go down there, it's on the embankment. There's no way that Shelley would have been able to ignore the Egyptology aspect. The other bit of evidence that led me to that conclusion is if you translate Ozymandias from Greek, because it's a Greek word, into Egyptian, you get Ramesses. And Ramesses is the name of several pharaohs who were part of a really known dynasty. Which leads me on to suspect number two. So one of the few bits of these encyclopedias which is translated is the description of a statue half buried in the sand that you can see a big smile that you can see half the face of and I nearly gave the game away because I was too excited. The description of the statue does not have a sneer of cold command, it has a big smiley face. I mean, I don't know if it was like, you know, the yellow and black smiley face, but it was it was big and he was clearly smiling. And this was recorded in this encyclopedia. So why change the smiley face to a sneering face unless it's like poetic license and it works? There's one theory which has floated around online, which I actually quite like. Shelley's bestie was Lord Byron. He of... You know, when we two parted in silence and tears, fame. Byron was very much the established celebrity at this point. He was mad, bad and dangerous to know. He was a celebrity due to his scandalous lifestyle, scandalous poetry, which implied the idea that women might fancy dudes rather than just sit there and wait for someone to ask them out. Shelley, despite being Byron's bestie, Shelley was kind of like the junior partner in their friendship. And... He didn't like Byron's obsession with celebrity. He saw poetry as being this kind of noble crusade. And he just thought Byron was in it for the attention. One of the most famous portraits of Byron and one of his habits was apparently sneering at people. He had this famous pose where he'd like wrinkle one lip in a sort of arrogant, charming fashion. Theory goes, Ozymandias is Byron. His celebrity 
cannot last forever. Eventually, everything that he's built, if he gets old and loses his talent or whatever, will come to nothing. It could be Shelley's back chat to Byron. as like a little sneaky, sneaky dig. You think you're so great. It's the sculptor that mocked him. So literally a mock-up is like where you do a first draft of something, where you do like a little model of the house before you build the house. Is Shelley the sculptor setting up an image of Byron and then laughing at him? I want to believe yes. I do want to believe that some of these poets are so petty that they would actually go for that. Let's take on another suspect, the church. He, I think he means the Church of England, but to be honest, I think it's the entire concept of churches. I don't think he's taking aim at any particular faith. I think it's just the idea of organised religion. It makes sense, because as I mentioned the atheism thing, he's not going to be a fan. But there's two clues that might lead you to agree with me on this one. First up, the King of Kings. It's usually used as a phrase to refer to Jesus. I remember primary school, back when you had to sing hymns in primary school, there was one that we had to sing that goes, sing Hosanna to the King of Kings. Um, I always got that really confused because there was a girl in my class called Joanna and I was like, sing Joanna to the King of Kings. Why would Jesus want to know about this girl in my class? But Anyway, it's finally become relevant. The other bit of information that is the good clue that I mentioned is the colossal wreck. So throughout Necessity of Atheism, Shelley's pamphlet, he's referred to the church as a colossus. He's referring to the Colossus of Rhodes, the great monument, which is seven wonders of the ancient world, which has now crumbled into nothing and we don't have evidence of it. That's what he's predicting is going to happen to the church. It will be a colossus that will crumble away and humanity will forget it. The fact he used colossal here is like a nice straight line between those three three points. And sometimes with this research, I feel like I'm one of those like JFK truther people where you have the conspiracy board and you like line up the threads between the photos. That's literally how I feel quite a lot of the time. But this would be a straight line. If I had a conspiracy board, it'd be a straight line. All right, all right, we've got one more suspect, and that is the monarchy. So we have George the Fourth on the throne, and he's, he's not that bad. On the scale of, like, British kings, from, like, the most murdery to the least murdery, he's all right, he's middle of the road. But the big problem is, as I mentioned in the Blake episode, there is a huge amount of repression and censorship. It's a really fabulous book called Peterloo, about the Peterloo Massacre, that describes the situation as being very, very close to pre-war Nazi Germany. If you published anything that was critical of the monarchy, if you said anything that was critical of the monarchy, you could be sent to prison. People were executed. You, speaking of um, Peterloo, massive demonstration in Manchester in which people were killed for demonstrating for democracy. Shelley, we know this, not going to be a fan of that. There's no way that the statue of Ozymandias is able to survive the onslaught of nature. The lone and level sands stretch far away, right? If the natural state of being 
is democracy, right, bear with me, then eventually nature or democracy will triumph over the monarchy and everything will be worn away and democracy will triumph, nature will triumph in this scene. Think about the word antique in an antique land. Antiques are valuable, but they're just like a curiosity. Maybe that's what England is going to be. Maybe that's how we are with our monarchy, is just like an amusing curiosity. And eventually, democracy will just sweep it all away. It's a good suspect. Or maybe it's all of them. I don't know. But then my last truth bomb that I'm dropping, context truth bombs, is it might be none of them. All of these threads might just be made up so this is my reason he Shelley and his mates because he had like quite a close circle of mates when he lived in England used to have little like competitions and one of them was all right I'm gonna give you a topic and you have to write a poem about it in a set amount of time like I don't know 24 hours which kind of sounds a little bit like GCSEs you know write a description based on this picture and you have like 45 minutes to do something and mine always end up being kind of crackers because um I look at the picture and because I have to do it really quickly if I'm working with a client to do an example I'm like, I did one about a cult leader, one about how my sister was a werewolf, one about Prospero being washed up on the shores of Sydney. I really have to stop working with people when I'm tired and asked to do descriptive because it all just goes a bit crackers. But the topics that Shelley and his mate were given was the word Ozymandias. After this amount of time, they both presented their poems. They both got published in a magazine, because that was kind of the deal. He had friends who were publishers, whoever won. And Shelley's went first, and his mates went second. Ozymandias, as we know, yeah, cool, that's what it is. His mates won. I quite like it. It's not in a sonnet form, it's a lot longer. And it makes it very clear at the end that it's like a post-apocalyptic England. It shifts back to the eye at the very start. And it's like, and then we walked away from the statue and we saw the ruins of London and so much time had passed and we're in a post-apocalyptic semi-wilderness state where we've all gone back to living in the forest. So it makes the whole thing far more explicit. And it has the same themes of the legs of stone and all that. But I think it makes it a little bit creepier. And I really, really like this poem. I've always liked Ozymandias. It has a bit of an oomph to it. That some of them don't. Some of them are a little bit limp. And this is like, it's got a little bit, a little bit of something, something behind it. I think that's what I said about Blake as well. I'm allowed not to, I'm allowed to have favourites. I'm not in a classroom anymore. I can say what I want. So, it could just have been a silly boy contest to get in a magazine and not have been any of that. There you go. Kaboom! That's the truth bomb dropping. Alright, once I've said my goodbyes, I'm going to play you out with a wonderful reading of Ozymandias from my voice actor this week, Laura. Thank you very, very much, Laura, for your time. STR Talk English on Twitter, straighttalkingenglish.com, Patreon, slash straighttalkingenglish, pay for the threads and drawing pins and printouts of photos and probably some tinfoil from a tinfoil hat as well the full context series is on amazon they are very very good uh, according to me 
and intensively researched. <laughs> Very intensively. And check out the YouTube apologies the Netflix sounds in the background. This is just my life now. Thank you very much. Goodbye and enjoy this reading from Laura. I met a traveller from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone level sands stretch far away. (laughs) 